pense. C'est parti. So hi guys, thank thanks for being here. I'm going to talk to you about a hacking harness I wrote, and I suspect that most of you do not know what a hacking harness is, uh, except those who were at stake a few weeks ago. And for those, I apologize in advance because there's going to be some overlap. Um, I will try to showcase different things in the demo, but otherwise, uh, it's mostly something you'll know. But for those who do not know what a hacking harness is, I think the best way to explain the concept is not to try to uh, explain it with words, but in instead to uh, show it to you. So what I'm going to do is first, I'll try to explain to you what problem a hacking harness is trying to solve. Then I'll jump, I'll jump straight ahead to the demonstration. And finally, I'll come back to all the discussion, etc. So the problem uh, I'm trying to solve here is the problem of anti-forensics. And the idea here isn't very complex. It's the fact that uh, what we call sophisticated attackers are going to try as much as they can to limit the amount of evidence they're going to create on the machines they breach. Um, the way they're going to do this is by uh, limiting the evidence they create, such as IP addresses and log files uh, that may be used for attribution later on. Um, information about the files that they upload to the machine, such as backdoors or exploits, that lose a lot of value after the, the defenders have captured them. And also, finally, uh, the, what they do with the machines that they breach that reveal the intentions of the, the attackers. Uh, we saw a presentation this morning from Thomas, uh, who showed us how the defenders work. And I think it was very interesting, because uh, it's fairly obvious to me that if we deny this data from, to, from Thomas, we are going to make his life much harder, and this is something we want to do. So there are basically two options to do this, and the first one is to delete the evidence that we create uh, after, after we've breached the machine. And if you look at the, uh, the leak from Equation Group from a while ago, you'll see that there are at least four different frameworks in it that uh, can be used to either uh, do secure deletion or delete logs in some kind of way. Um, I think the problem with deleting the evidence is that it's very hard. It's very easy to forget one file that contains uh, the IP address, and one file is all the blue team needs to figure out that something is going wrong. There is a second approach, which, by the way, is not mutually exclu exclusive with the first one, which is to never create that evidence in the first place. And the way that you can do this is execute as much as you can in memory, use commands like unsatisfile to prevent what you do from, on the machine from being logged, etc. So I think that it would behoove red teamers to try as much as they can to replicate uh, the procedures that APTs use, because this way they'll be able to show the blue team what they are actually able to see when they are faced with uh, a sophisticated, atta sophisticated attacker. One, th one thing that you, people usually say in the domain of cybersecurity is that the attacker has the, the, up, the upper hand, and this is because the attacker only has to find a single flaw in the, in the opponent's IT to be able to breach it. But I think, on the other hand, it's, very, it's quite easy for the defender to be able to, look, to, uh, to figure out that something wrong is going on. And it's what, I say, what, I mean, what, it's what I mean when I say that the blue team only needs a single mistake. Uh, if you look at the tooling that is used during the post-exploitation phase, usually you work uh, on your terminal with um, you know, a low-privileged shell that doesn't have a lot of capabilities. Uh, there was a presentation by the Grug in 2007 in which he, he presented the concept of hacking harness, and I think he was right about uh, almost everything in that talk. And one, one of the things he said, I think, which is very interesting, is that hacking is a contest of blunders, and he who makes the less mistakes wins. And 
it's a fair question to ask whether the tools that we are actually using, uh, do they help us avoid making mistakes or, on the other hand, are they inciting those mistakes? And in the case of traditional post-exploitation, I think we are in, firmly in the second case because you may be working with a long anonymization tool chain that adds a lot of latency inside your command line and you type something and you don't see what you type un until a few seconds. Uh, and issuing simple commands like ls or cd can be something extremely difficult. Um, there are solutions that are based on the deployment of an agent on the remote machine, but I think it's uh, a bit contradictory because if you start uploading agents on the remote machine, then that's a TTP right there, and you're already providing the blue team with some of your tools, which is not good. Another problem that you might have is that uploading something on a remote machine based on a low-privileged shell may be a very difficult thing in itself, by which I mean if you try to upload a file from a, a triple W data shell, uh, you'll see that the few options you have are to upload your file onto some third-party service like uh, transfer.sh or mega upload. And you don't know, maybe the services are going to upload all, everything you submit to them to virus level, and this is not good. Uh, you can also try to put the file on a web server you control and wget from there, but if you do this, then you have to make really sure that the server cannot be traced back to you, and this is also something quite, quite hard. And the main purpose of the hacking harness is to uh, solve this problem. So I'm going to go straight to the demonstra demonstration now, and I'm going to take uh, the before picture and show you what a, a classic exploitation looks like if you don't have a hacking harness. And I, I think this is a scene that you're going to find very familiar. Uh, can anybody see? Yeah, okay, perfect. So first what I'm going to do is I'm going to SSH into a server, and you'll notice that there's the minus T flag that disables the remote TTY uh, allocation. Uh, basically, it's just like if I send myself a reverse netcat shell uh, with the added advantage that uh, nobody is going to try to hijack my demonstration. So I'm going to connect on the machine uh, with uh, no harness enabled, and here I log into the machine and I have a shell, so if I type a command, it's going to be executed, but if I try to have some basic functionality like uh, tab completion, it's not going to work. You just get the tabs inside the terminal, then you try to go back, it doesn't work. You try to go up, you have no history, and suddenly you press Control C because you're frustrated and your shell is lost, and then you've lost maybe an hour or two of work, and maybe the exploit you just used cannot be used again. So it's a, it's a real pain. So instead, I'm going to launch my hacking harness. And basically what it does is I get the same shell as before, only it's enhanced. So I'm going to connect back to the machine. And one of the first things you'll notice is, um, this is a feature I've added, which is if the harness detects that I'm trying to log to a remote machine uh, directly, it's going to notify me that uh, maybe I'm going to leak my IP address and I should add some command in front of it to avoid uh, leaking my, e my IP address. So by the way, this is not uh, a recommendation on my part on how you should work or anonymize yourself. I'm not saying that you have good upsec if you use Tor. I'm just using this uh, as a demonstration on the way uh, that a hacking harness can be used to prevent you from making mistakes. So in this particular instance, I'm just going to bypass because uh, I'm, I don't want to go through Tor in this case. It's going to be a, a little too slow. Uh, oh, sorry, what did, I, what did I do again? Oh, come on, okay. Yeah, but it's just telling me that it's going to add the minus T command automatically. Okay, let's go for Torify. Yeah, so here it's telling me that the minus T option has been added um, automatically, and the reason for this is that 
the minus tick option is going to add uh, stealth to my uh, remote shell in the way that if I tap W when I'm logged in, I'm not going to see anyone logged in into the, onto the machine. It's going to leave uh, fewer traces in the logs. Um, I'm trying to see where we are. Let's add the minus VP. Oh yeah, I, I don't think Torrify is allowed. Okay, let's try this again. Yeah, I don't know what went wrong earlier. Come on, network. Please be kind. Yeah, it's on the Wi-Fi. Yeah. Oh, the port is open. It's on 443. Yeah, I just connected to it, by the way. Oh, please. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, you know what? Ah, screw it. I'm going to do the rest locally. No, I can't actually. <laughs> Damn. Okay, you know what? We'll let it try to connect and I'll go and do some more slides. Uh. Ah, demo god. And we're almost back. Okay. <laughs> okay, I apologize for this. Okay, there we go. So uh, I hope we'll be able to get back to this later. But basically, the idea behind the hacking harness is that you get um, an improved shell environment in that's going to be able to run uh, standard tasks for you, such as uploading a file directly from the shell, downloading a file, etc., and also provide execution in memory. Uh, and also provide the basic TTY emulations. It's something you weren't able to see, but if I had connected to the remote machine without a TTY, I would have been able to tab-tab and get tab completion. It would have Supposedly, it works. You have to believe me on this for now. The other idea behind the hacking harness is that it can be tailored to anyone's workflow. So you don't have to work the way I do. If you want to write your own plugins that do different things in the terminal for you, then it's entirely possible. One of the main uh, concepts behind the hacking harness is everything is done locally. Uh, what I mean by this is that all the command line that you are typing are typed on your local machine, and they are only sent on the remote machine when you press enter. And this means that any delay that may be caused by the network is just not going to appear. At this point, most people usually ask me why they would be using a hacking harness instead of using, for instance, uh, an agent like a Metapreter from Metasploit. And I think if you like Metasploit, it's entirely possible that you can use it, uh, and you should use it if you like it. But if you think about the standard exploitation scenario where 
you first try to uh, find a vulnerable application on, on the client's machine, then you exploit that vulnerability and you get some kind of remote code execution, and then you have a, a reverse shell that arrives to your machine somehow, and you, you move on to the persistence and lateral movement phase. And Metapreter is used in that last phase, which is the persistence and lateral movement. But if you go back one step and uh, think back uh, at the place where you have to upload the Metapreter on the remote machine, uh, this, is the, some, this is a phase that's usually a lot more painful than you'd think it would be. And this is where the hacking harness can help you. And if that's your deal, uh, you can even write a, a, a hacking harness plugin that's going to create the Metapreter instance for you. It's going to uh, launch the Metasploit on your local machine, uh, launch a listener, and then upload the Metasploiter and run it in memory in, in the remote machine. So the, two, the, two, uh, the tools are complementary in that sense. So I'd like to talk a bit more about how TTYs work uh, to explain how uh, the hacking harness is implemented. And in order to talk about TTYs, we have to go back in time a bit and talk about uh, teletypes, which were the standard input devices in the 70s. So they are now basically an extinct species. You have to think of them like uh, prehistoric keyboards. So when uh, the computers became more prominent and when they became smaller, people started to wonder how they would interact with them. And they basically took uh, the thing they already had, which was um, uh, the, the, t the teletypes that were used to send telegrams, and that made sense. And even though the, t the, t the teletypes uh, have disappeared by now, they, their legacy lives on in the Linux kernel. So in the 1980s, this is what uh, the, the kernel looked like. So you had the hardware, which was the, the teletype, which uh, was talking to the kernel through a, a serial port. Then there was something called the line discipline. The line discipline is some rudimentary command edition that's in the kernel. It means that if you type backspace on your keyboard, uh, it's not going to print a weird character. It's going to move the caret uh, one space back and delete the current character. So this is what the line discipline does. And then there was this TTY driver that would, um, uh, the TTY driver would uh, make sure that the right process gets the, the right signal, etc. So fast forward uh, 20 years in the future, and now we have drivers and keyboard, uh, we have displays and keyboards, and what they did is they didn't rewrite the whole chain in the kernel, they just added um, a kind of terminal emulator that uh, abstracts the API and allows the rest to work exactly, exactly the same. And if you forward 20 more years, then uh, I'm not sure how it works exactly, and I, actually I don't really care. The only thing that's important regarding uh, the way that the harness works is that you put the terminal in what is called row mode, which means that all the input is forwarded uh, as is to the, uh, to the process. And inside the hacking harness, all the, the, the line disciplines have been implemented again uh, in user mode. So it means that all the command line is re-implemented basically in Python. Uh, okay, I'm going to skip over this uh, state machine, which is not really interesting. So I'm going to focus a bit more on the architecture. And the reason why we want this is because um, the fact that we handle the command line on our local machine is very helpful because if we see something that's, interest, that's interesting for us, then we can intercept the command, and rewrite it, and we can generate as much commands as we want. And on the other way around, it's quite easy to react to the output. So if you see a particular pattern inside the output, you can generate a new commands, etc., etc. Uh, it's also interesting that all, since all the functionalities of the, of the pseudo terminal are implemented on the local machine then you don't need to create PTYs on the remote servers because you already have everything you need here. So that's less logs that you're creating. Uh, I'm going to just to see how the connection went. 
yeah, unable to resolve. Okay, screw this. So I'm going to talk about the, the various commands. So what I've impl implemented is the possibility to upload and download files directly from the shell. So what it does is basically you, you specify a file and it's going to create uh, a, li a, a list of XXD, uh, echo, uh, base64, etc. commands that create the, the file on the remote machine without you having to uh, connect to it uh, other than your, with your current shell. So it's very interesting because if you're connected to the remote machine by a chain of SSH connections, then all your terminal commands go through that SSH connection and the encryption is built in. Another thing that's implemented is a command called .py, which executes remote commands in memory. Uh, it executes remote Python scripts, so you don't have to uh, send your, your Python scripts uh, to the blue team. You can just run them from your, from your local machine on the remote server that you're connected to. Uh, there's also a command to allocate a PTY if you need one for commands like sudo, etc. And things I'd also like to have, like uh, the possibility to execute uh, ELF files in memory, which it's actually possible. There's, there are some techniques published in FRAC, but I just haven't had the time to implement them yet. I'm going to uh, leave the slide for people interested on, on Twitter uh, and give skip straight to the compatibility. The, the harness has been tested mostly on Debian flavors. Uh, so on the client side, it's going to work mostly everywhere as long as you have Python 3. Um, on the remote side, it's a bit more complex because the, the harness is genera generating commands and it expects a few commands to exist. Like if you don't have ls on the remote machine, then the tab completion is just not going to work. Uh, so most uh, command line shells are going to function properly. If you use web-based shells, sometimes things uh, don't go too well. So for example, Weavely cannot execute Python in memory because it cannot execute multi-line uh, commands. You cannot uh, have a command that's separated into multi-lines because Weavely tries to send them uh, line by line. So uh, to wrap this up, this is a, a hacking harness that's written in Python 3. It's open source and available on GitHub. Uh, I'll put the slides up on the, on the internet and uh, I'll help you look them up because there is a demonstration, a video demonstration of the, uh, of the tool that's going to work 100% this time. Uh, I'll be happy to show you outside as well if you're interested in. Basically, it's a bit, uh, at the moment, it's a little uh, experimental, so there are going to be uh, some bugs, but I've been using it uh, successfully so far, so I'm not complaining. And I'm also interested in any plugin ideas you might have. So thank you very much for your attention. Uh, maybe one quick question, if you have one. I just have one question. It's very interesting. Um, imagine that you connect to a remote host, yep. um, and the um, adversary on the other side uh, basically modify logout to claim that the logout is performed. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I've seen that happening in some honeypots, where basically the uh, remote persons try to log out, and then he continues to type, thinking it was in these local terminals. Is there a way in, uh, in your tools to basically avoid such kind of thing? There would be a way, actually, which is uh, at the moment you type exit on your machine, you can look at the, all the child processes in your, in your bash, uh, sorry, in, your, in your, the bash you control. So if there are still SSH processes in your bash, then it might be an indication that uh, it, should have been, it should have died and it has not. So we could do a plugin in your... Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, yeah. great. Okay, thanks. Sorry, we are a bit uh, short on time.